Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we're here with Dr. Michael Nyberg, the author of The Path to War, How the First World War Created Modern America. And Dr. Nyberg, you start your book off with a very interesting fact, that in 1915, the number one song in America was I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier, and by 1917, the number one song is Over There. That's evidence of a significant political and cultural shift, and we're going to discuss that shift today, but start us off with American attitudes towards the war in 1914. In 1914, there's a big division in American public opinion. Uh, the vast majority of Americans saw the war as Europe's problem. Uh, they did not want to get involved at all. Uh, though among Americans who cared about who won the war, there was much more of a pro-British and pro-French sympathy than there was a pro-German one. Uh, but for the most part, Americans in 1914 are looking for a way to help the suffering. Uh, there's a lot of American charitable efforts in 1914, a lot of money being given to help orphans, to help widows. Uh, to help wounded soldiers. The vast majority of that money, the vast majority of that effort, the volunteers who go over, the nurses, the doctors, are going over primarily to help the French and to help Serbia. So there, there's a pro-Allied sentiment from the very beginning. But in 1914, uh, very few Americans called for going to war. Now, a lot happens in 1915. You've got the sinking of the Lusitania. You have Italy entering the war. How do Americans respond to this? I think the Lusitania is really important, and, and you ask almost anybody who what caused America to end the First World War, the Lusitania will probably come up more than anything else. That's not true, because the Lusitania occurs in the spring of 1915. But what the Lusitania did do is convince Americans that they couldn't ignore the war in Europe simply because they wanted to, that the war was coming closer and closer and closer to their own shores. So what the Lusitania sinking really did is set off this debate in the United States between those like the American Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, who wanted to go to an even firmer neutrality, and those like the former President Theodore Roosevelt, who argued that now it was time to really begin to prepare the American military, because anything could happen to pull us into the war, whether we wanted to be in it or not. So that's what I think the importance of the Lusitania is. It, it, it really brought into public discourse this question, if this war is not going to end as it now looked as though it was not, uh, what do we do about it? How do we react to it? Now, you mentioned a little earlier that it seemed that there was a bit of a pro-Allied bias. How neutral is the United States at this point in the war? Well, I don't think the United States is neutral at all, except in the way that we defined our neutrality. So uh, there's lots of ways you can think about neutrality. It could mean having no impact on the war at all. It could mean having equal impact to both sides. Uh, that's not what the Americans chose. Uh, we, as a country, as a leadership, chose neutrality to be defined as we get to do what we want. And what that meant was an awful lot of trade with the Allies, which both controlled the high seas. Uh, they also controlled greater levels of finance. They had sympathizers inside the American financial community. And they had the tremendous advantage, Canada then being a part of the British Empire, of having a 3,000-mile border. So if you were an American and you wanted to trade with Great Britain, the only risk you had to undertake was getting your product to Canada. And then it was up to the British to transport it overseas. So it's a case, as I argue in the book, where America's wallet and their hearts really did overlap. Now, you mention in your book the idea of two Germanys. Can you explain that? Sure. It's an idea that first begins in Europe, but it, it comes over to the United States as well. And the notion is that you have uh, a, a Prussian state that is overly militaristic, 
that is uh, anti-democratic, uh, that is kind of anti-liberty and freedom, that has taken over and unified all of Germany. So the division in the American mind, and it comes through quite clearly when you when you read what Americans are saying, is that there's nothing necessarily wrong with Germany, uh, but what's wrong is the second Germany. What's wrong is the government, the Kaiser. It's the reason that the Kaiser becomes the single most lampooned figure in World War One. The idea is if you can just get rid of him, if you can just get rid of that bad Germany, you can then uh, let the energies of the good Germany come to the fore. Now, America, in terms of the military, is pretty unprepared to enter a war at this point. Is that a factor in maintaining the veneer of official neutrality? I think it is. Uh, in other words, they're trying to buy a little bit of time to get the Army and the Navy ready to go to fight a war. And it's a difficult thing because it means asking a lot of very difficult questions. How much control do you want to give the federal government as opposed to the states? Do you want to raise taxes? How do you want to handle all of these problems? And they're frankly problems that the American political system would prefer to ignore. Uh, would you keep an army segregated? Would you integrate? All of these are tricky, tricky questions in the America of 1915, 1916, and they're easier to just ignore or compromise on than they are to really, really wrestle with. What can you tell us about the preparedness movement? It's very controversial. Uh, they, I think by 1916, most Americans have agreed that you have to do something, uh, but what that something is is very much uh, open to debate. The American Secretary of War, a New Jersey lawyer named Lindley Garrison, wanted to get rid of the State National Guard units and go to one large federal army. Uh, that pop plan proves incredibly unpopular. Uh, we do create a few things like the ROTC program, which is created in 1916 to kind of educate young men in the event of an emergency, so you have a kind of basis for the officer corps. There is an agreement in 1916 that the state national guards can be federalized and sent overseas if the president declares an emergency. But these are all kind of political half measures, and especially in 1916, which is an election year, um, and they don't go quite as far as people like Theodore Roosevelt wanted. Now, when you were talking earlier about the idea of the two Germanys, you have America or Americans thinking the Germans are good people, but Prussian militarism is really bad. How do Americans reconcile preparedness with that kind of fear of militarism? In part, they do it by arguing that if if the Germans were really free to act, then the war wouldn't be going on the way that it was going on. In other words, that the German government really has taken over the people. So there actually becomes an argument, many German-Americans even make it, that you would actually be doing the German people a favor by getting into the war if on the other side came out a, a true German democracy. So there is this argument, and Wilson says it in his Declaration of War speech, that we're not making war against the German people, we're making war against the German government. And this is a particularly American way of thinking about war and conflict that persists, I think, even to today. The French and British are baffled by it, but the Americans are convinced that the problem is not Germany. The problem is this very small group of people that has kind of twisted an otherwise good German people into doing something very evil. Uh, 1916, 1917, that's a very critical period. What's happening during that time? A well, lot's happening, uh, especially at the end of 1916 and early 1917. And I think there's three key events that are happening. Uh, one is the Russian Revolution, which takes out the Tsar, uh, at first at least in favor of a reasonably democratic government re led by a man named Alexander Kerensky. What that does is it allows Wilson to say that this is now a war to make the world safe for democracy. In other words, 
the war can be justified if on the end of it there's a democracy in Russia and a democracy in Germany. This is another kind of American conceit that people don't go to war, bad governments go to war. So that's one thing that happens. The second is that the Germans announce that they're going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare, which means that Americans could die on the high seas, and the government obviously feels a responsibility to protect American life. And then the third, I think the really important one of the three, the thunderbolt of this thing called the Zimmerman Telegram, where the Germans offer Mexico, basically Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, if they'll enter the war on Germany's side. So what that means is the war is really no longer about what's happening in Europe. It's really about what's happening inside the United States. And it's about the threat that you could come out of this war with Germany in alliance with Mexico and Japan, who's also mentioned in the telegram, and that the United States would then be in a position where it could not defend its core interests. So I think those three events together push most of the remaining people who are on the fence into the belief that neutrality is no longer working. Entering the war is the only thing that will solve the problem. What is Woodrow Wilson's role in all of this? Is he shepherding American public opinion, or is he reacting to it and trying to harness it? Not sure I should say this on a Virginia podcast, but the more I study Wilson, the less I like him. Um, To his credit, I think he's desperately hoping that something's going to happen that will make him not have to make this decision to, to lead the United States into war. Um, I don't think he wanted this war. I think, like many Americans, he came to the conclusion that there really wasn't another way. And I think in those last few days before he made the final decision, he was very hesitant, he was indecisive, he was not communicative with his advisors, uh, because I think he really was hoping for some miracle, something that would get us out of this. And then when he realized that that wasn't going to happen, I think he quite reluctantly wrote that Declaration of War speech, which, despite what I said earlier, um, is just a brilliant piece of oratory about explaining what he thought the United States was doing and why he thought he was doing something that he thought was a sin, that is, taking a country into war. Um, And so I have my students, I ask my students to read that Declaration of War statement, not just for what it says about 1917, but I think what it really says about this country and the way that it thinks about military force. Now, in your book, you spend a lot of time covering immigrants, particularly the Irish, Germans, the Italians, as well as other groups, Jews, African Americans. How are they part of formulating the American response to this war? So when I started the research, my, my, my hypothesis was that they would go through a very different kind of transition, very different kind of path from 1914 to 1917. And what I found was that in 1914, yes, there's a different path. By 1917, they're all agreed that their, their country, the United States, has tried everything else. There's nothing else. There's nothing else to do but get involved in the war. But they do it for reasons that are both external, that is, that is related to the world outside, and the internal as well. So in the case of Jews, most Jews are um, in favor of Germany and Austria-Hungary when the First World War begins because of how anti-Semitic, how awful the Russian government was. By 1917, not only their identity as Americans, it is they've gone through the same transition that their non-Jewish American uh, countrymen have gone through, but also the Tsar's government is now gone, so that that incentive is gone, and the British government and French government have come out in favor of, of a Jewish homeland in the Middle East. So both for reasons of being Jewish and for reasons of being American, they've come into alignment with their with their fellow Americans. And the same story can largely be told of the Germans, the Irish, etc., that whatever views they had in 1914, by 1917... Uh, they're thinking very much in the same way that their fellow Americans are, if maybe their motivations are a little bit different. So that there's no, other than the, the kind of radical left-wing labor socialists like the International Workers of the World, which is a small group, there's no real center of opposition. There's certainly not one based on ethnicity.
A lot of studies of America's road to war focus on propaganda and on uh, a government and financial system that had a lot to gain by a period of neutrality followed by entering the war. But you and your book make the case that Americans weren't tricked or coerced into World War I. As you've been explaining, they had a lot of agency in the mm -hmm. policy evolution that took place. Can you flesh this out just a little bit more for us? Sure. I mean, propaganda is really a difficult thing for historians like myself to judge. That is, we can judge what the government, what message the government was trying to send. What is harder to judge is how the American people received it, or if they bothered to receive it at all. Um, I can't find any evidence of anybody um, saying, you know, I, I really wasn't sure about this, but then I saw that government poster. Uh, that That's not what Americans are saying. And as far as the great industry and finance uh, goes, it's a circumstantial case only, by which I mean it would make sense that the people that had a financial stake would want war, but they don't seem to want war any more than anybody else does. That is to say, their argument is the same as everybody else's. We tried everything else. We tried to keep our country neutral. Uh, now the only way to keep our country safe, the only way to protect it, is to destroy this terrible German regime. So I can't find any actual evidence that propaganda or the wishes of the of the richest Americans, the 1%, I guess we would say today, I can't find any evidence that that's what's driving the decision-making at the higher levels of American government. And I actually can't find any evidence that it's actually influencing people in, in Main Street USA either. Can you walk us through the major developments of early 1917 leading up to that actual declaration of war? So the main thing is that uh, Wilson gives something that he calls the overt act speech. In other words, what he says is, look, I know what the Germans have said. I know they've said they want unrestricted submarine warfare, and I know they've issued this Zimmerman telegram. But he says, I don't actually believe they're going to they're gonna act on it. And he uses this phrase, I'll await the overt act. That is to say, I'll, I'll, I'll wait until they actually do something. And then soon, soon after that, state governors, local officials start taking matters into their own hands. So Massachusetts calls out its National Guard being a coastal state. New York does the same thing to protect New York Harbor, which they think is under threat. Wilson's advisors go to him and say, hey, Mr. President, it's the Congress that declares war, not the president. What will you do if Congress declares war without you? So in other words, what they're telling him is, look, the American people are scared. They, they, they need answers and you're not providing them. So this is another reason that I think Wilson's not really driving this train. He's trying desperately to find a, a way not to do this. And then eventually by early April, I think he's realized that there's, there's nothing he can do, that, that he will find himself in a real crisis if he doesn't take action. But Theodore Roosevelt actually says, if Wilson doesn't declare war, quote, I will go to the White House and skin him alive. So there, there's this fear in America um, and the President of the United States isn't responding to the fear. So in early April, he finally does uh, take this plunge. And again, to Wilson's credit, he really does believe that what he's doing is sinful, which is, I think, the reason he's so powerfully motivated in the peace process to redeem the sin by making the world a better place. It doesn't work, but, I mean, he's motivated by the right, yeah, he the right idea. Yeah. I think a lot of Americans would say that the experience of World War I resulted in a loss of idealism. The idea of the lost generation captures the spirit. But did Americans really go into the war completely innocent and ignorant of the cost that they would pay? Absolutely not. Um, what I think is true, what I argue is true in the book, is that what Americans really wanted was to protect themselves from that threat that they felt. And I think what's true is that the vast majority of Americans thought on November 11th, 1918, that they had done that. The German government had been destroyed. Uh, there was a kind of quasi-democratic state in Germany. Um, they thought they had done what they had agreed to do. 
Wilson's quest to sort of remake the entire world, to rebuild it, to change the way the entire world order was organized, that's not something that most Americans had agreed to do. So I, the, the metaphor that I use is kind of an hourglass. That in 1914, there are these wide varieties of American opinion. By the middle of, by the early 1917, those things had narrowed to the very narrow neck of going to war, and then as soon as the armistice is signed on November 11th, 1918, it opens up again, and there's wide disagreement on what the United States ought to do. So I think the disappointment and the disillusion comes from that. It comes from the, not not from the war itself, and you can go and look at any one of war memorials, probably in your own hometown, they use phrases like the war for civilization. The, you know, they, they meant it. What they're disappointed by is the fact that the, the, the peace that comes out of it in 1919 and then, of course, the Great Depression, the Second World War, proved that that sacrifice had not been worth it. But it's not the war itself. It's, it's the failure of the peace. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Nyberg, for taking the time today to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.